you are now doing less with John and Jeff, and this is this is gonna be a rare episode. You know it's serious when me and John actually think the government might need to do more. Uh, and Say it ain't so. <laughs> this could be a sign of the apocalypse that that, that we're we're talking about the government needs to actually step in and do more. But you know we're not we're still not sure about that. Yeah, we might have to change the name of our podcast after this episode. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but we're we're coming to you uh, after the the recent outbreak of coronavirus, which has started in China, specifically Wuhan, China. It's a very severe outbreak, a very severe uh, virus that has led to uh, twenty five deaths and counting. Right. It is a little, it, there, there's some ominous signs about this virus. And while 800, there's about 800 cases of it recorded, reported so far, and it has been climbing. So it has been spreading pretty rapidly. And the thing about these sorts of things is the growth is exponential, potentially, if it, if it isn't can't, contained or cured, right? So it starts to grow slow but you know if 10 people get it but they were in contact with another 10 people then each one of those could get it and they could go somewhere else and you see these things sort of develop i guess like a critical mass and they and they they spread out significantly until they're i guess contained um and the ominous thing about this one i would say is uh, Bill Gates is a guy who spends a lot of time. Uh, we actually talked about Bill Gates before on this podcast, but um, other than making Microsoft, he spends a lot of time on philanthropy for uh, mostly for like inf- infectious diseases. Um, so things with like vaccines and uh, malaria, stuff like that. And he's been predicting that a flu similar to SARS or similar to the one in nine, there's a night, the pandemic in 1918 that killed 50 million people could potentially kill 30 million people within six months. That's just his speculation using like, you know, his simulation model. And basically what he's his analysis of this is saying we as a, our societies are not properly prepared for this as a threat right so like there's all sorts of threats that we think about right like nuclear threat like global military conflict these are threats that actually our governments are pretty well prepared for and we think about all the time but in his opinion this is something we're not adequately prepared for and i guess this coronavirus which in a lot of way fits the description of what he's talking about could put that theory to the test. And so there's definitely cause for concern here. And this sort of puts, this is one of those interesting questions that I think. Well, one, one second. Yeah. So if I could say something about the, about Bill Gates prediction. So it mm-hmm. is actually for him to make that prediction. And I think it was December of 2018. He, mm-hmm. you know, he made public this uh, potential for a, disease that could break out and kill 30 million and he has Mm -hmm. the simulation and to be honest when i see that i mean it's not like that's 
like he's like groundbreaking with that sp- right. specifically because there's been so many times in history where there's been viruses that have killed so many and right like, play the plague that killed so many. So it's not hard to like make a prediction and say that. Mm-hmm. I would say though, I do commend him for making that for what Jeff you were, were leading on to um, when I stopped you, mm-hmm. which is that it does need to be addressed. Like this isn't something that you just snap your finger and say oh drats i wish we did more about that in the past right uh that's definitely something you should be able to prepare for uh a a society any any interconnected group of organisms that live together in close contact should have a protocol if they have the long-term survival of their species in mind they should have some kind of protocol or some pretty robust way to protect themselves from a a viral outbreak um, mm-hmm. because it's not necessarily in any individual party's best interest. Um, there needs to be a collective kind of understanding that everyone chip in and let's take care of this right. potentially existential threat. Right. Especially how interconnected we are today, how easy it is for people to travel and get around. Like there's constantly people traveling from one part of the world to the other. So by the time you even understand that, there may be like a pandemic threat. It may have already spread out through the entire world by the, by the time, because they're saying like this virus has a 14 day gestation period. So it seems as though by the time we even are aware of it, it's, it's already been spread throughout the world and we're seeing cases throughout the world. Um, It started in China and that's the most likely place for it to start because it's the highest population with the most people in close contact. They have sort of lax standards on like food safety and stuff like that. So these diseases a lot of times can start in animals. And then like if people don't properly prepare the food before consumption, it can be transmitted from animals to people. And so it starts in China and then it spreads from there because China doesn't just stay by itself. There's constantly people mixing in from China going elsewhere and people going to China, et cetera, et cetera. And I think on this podcast, what we'd like to do is sort of explore the idea of what can be, you know, what are the possible answers to a threat like this? Because I think me and John would both agree that actually this is one of those cases where the market cannot provide a solution to a pandemic like this. Um, I mean, it may be able to offer some solutions in the form of like a universal flu vaccine that has the potential for lots of profit. Like I'm sure if someone could develop that, then that would be highly profitable because a lot of people would would get that sort of thing. Um, But if you don't have such a uh, like prevention tool in hand, then, you know, what do you do, right? So like, how do you respond when you don't have a cure the thing is spreading and you you want to contain it as best as possible. And to me, the market doesn't doesn't offer a solution to that because this is sort of a, a situation that comes down to the collective, right? And individual incentives don't necessarily provide us with a way out of this situation. Yeah, usually on this podcast, our kind of mantra is individual freedom, indiv- individual liberty, the allow... If you allow the individual to act in its own interest, then you will achieve the best solution for that individual when that individual is allowed to seek 
themes to be optimal. Uh, but for something like this, this kind of extreme case where societies in general are under attack as opposed to just individuals, it isn't really up to the in- individual to make that best decision because, for example, sometimes the individual's decision can be the best deemed solution for them, but it's actually worse off for the case of humanity, which in the in that in that sense is worse off for the individual let me explain if there's a highly if there's a high concentration of a disease if everybody in wuhan china decides to leave because they want to get out of this place where there's a concentration of a disease well that means that when everybody leaves the carriers of the disease also leave and when the carriers of the disease leave then they introduce it to the places that they will go right and they're all not they're not all going to the same place so it causes the disease to spread right so when every so every individual actor in that scenario is saying i want to protect myself i want to get away from this disease right but unknowingly the transmission occurs more efficiently of this disease by having the people interact with different people at in different locations geographically. So it's actually, in terms of a societal standpoint, it would have been better for those individuals to remain. So this is a case where each individual's incentive is to flee, is to get out of the high concentration of the origination of the virus, right? It's in everyone's best interest to get away. But if you're talking about society's best interest, that could be potentially disastrous because now what you're doing is you're taking the most heavily concentrated place of the disease, and you're spreading it out throughout the world, wherever people decide to go. Maybe there's the case where if there's not enough high concentration of the disease and everyone leaves that center and they disperse enough, then maybe that reduces the probability of it spreading because now everyone's spread apart and they don't necessarily, there's not necessarily a critical mass to spread the thing. I don't know. That that could be a possible case, I feel like. But in the case that, you know, basically this thing's been gestating in one city, then everyone finds out and then there's a bunch of unknowing carriers of the thing. They all flee, they spread out, it spreads and spreads and spreads and spreads. You know, that's kind of the disaster scenario. And I guess so China's reaction to this has been to shut down cities. So what they're doing is they're trapping people in cities and the question is, so China's basically like a dis- dictatorship. They have a president who has declared himself president for life. And he pretty, he has a, a lot of power and can do a lot, right? And the citizens don't have a ton of personal freedom. So China's probably set to be able to do this sort of thing pretty effectively. This is an example of strong centralized power, right? So they're, they're going to have an easier time of closing down cities than probably anywhere, most, pla- uh, most other places in the world. And I guess, you know, this, this may be a question of, is this an example where strong authority- authoritarian centralized government actually benefits society in the long run, right? Because like by shutting down the city, you're basically saying t- you're, you're, sh- you're taking away people's freedom in that city to act in their best interests. So this could be very well a death sentence to a bunch of people that they have now 
locked in that city. And so that's sort of unfair to them. But now if you save the other 90% of people, I guess, is that morally an okay thing to do? And so this, this is such a difficult question to answer for me personally, because most of the time I feel like it's never okay to restrict another person's freedom. But there is this sort of question of kill one person to save a thousand sort of deal where it's like, you may be dooming the people in the city, but if you save the rest of the world, does that make it okay? Uh, and I don't know. I, that's such a, that's such a tough answer to question. I feel like it's a cop out to just say, I don't know. But the reality is I, I don't, I don't feel as though I have a really good answer where I'm like confident one way or the other on something like that. What do you think, John? Yeah, that was well said. And I similarly have a tough time wrestling with this for the same reasons. I mean, I really strongly believe in personal liberty and individual freedom, individual rights. But I also look at this as like, as, we, as we've been talking about in a societal context, there's like a logical decision to be made. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's, it may be the right answer. It may not be. I mean, I think I could, I could definitely be convinced or I could definitely see the point of view where a, a strong centralization of power in this circumstance can be correct, mm-hmm. um, which is why we started the podcast off saying maybe we need to change the podcast title. <laughs> but I think that really the reason we wanted to talk about it is for the listener to, to hear us wrestle with, the, with this use of, of centralized power and say that there's actually merits to it. Mm-hmm. We're not just here <laughs> protesting the government, declaring <laughs> everything the government does is bad. Right. And I, I actually really didn't want to talk about this today on this podcast, to be completely honest. Um, but I think Jeff did a good job of convincing me that when you show that you are open to both sides, it kind of gives lends more credibility to your argument uh, when you are opposed to government action. If you are able to sit, to state instances where government action is actually logical and necessary, mm-hmm. we could we could maybe gain some credibility from a side that may think that we're just ignorantly discounting government action as all bad, which is not the case. Um, right. But this is a tough. It's a tough scenario. It's it's really uh it's hard to watch too, especially with. The, with all the news sites making it seem like it's the world is ending. Like if you go to the live yeah. coverage they have, there's like red X's and red dots of the disease spreading. And I mean, it is serious and it is good for them to make people scared and make people want to take precautions. Uh, right. Same thing with, as I was saying with Bill Gates, it's good to spread the message that this is dangerous and mm-hmm. there, there should be stuff done to prevent it from spreading. Right. And so, like, it's probably not good to start a panic because panics are dangerous. Uh, and I don't think that it sounds like it seems like some people kind of profit off like panicky stuff. Like that's sort of their business model to like shock and outrage and scare people. Yeah, definitely. But, you know, again, like Bill Gates said, this is the type of thing that is a potential serious threat that I don't. And I would agree with him that we don't really prepare for potentially enough. You know, maybe this thing will be contained soon and that will be the end of it and no one else will get sick. But, you know, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it spreads a lot. That's also a possibility. Um, and it's important to be careful and do things that are suggested like by the World Health Organization, stuff like that. And again, this question of what should the government do in these sorts of things is very interesting because I actually think that with a sufficient amount of panic, maybe 
Like a government that's optimized to handle normal functioning societies may actually be impotent to even do anything in this scenario. Like China's very authoritarian and they, they have the power to shut down cities. I actually don't think the U.S. government in a panic has the potent, has the power to keep people from leaving because like in this country, people can own guns and a lot of people do. And there's just not enough people on the government payroll who are willing to, at the end of the day, stand, hold the line in front of a bunch of panicky people who want to get the hell out. Like, so it may actually be that like an optimal government in a normally functioning society is actually impotent to fight these kinds of threats. And the question is, I just thought of, uh, I just thought of uh, most of the cities that I've been to in my life are very poorly designed in terms of infrastructure and mm-hmm. in terms of exit capacity. <laughs> so maybe the government's long plan for <laughs> dealing with <laughs> with quarantine scenarios is to build the infrastructure so bad that they don't have to create an active force in <laughs> isolating. It's like a city. people just the own traffic keeps them in. Yeah, people's yeah, people's just <laughs> tendency to try to use the highways as they're supposed to be able to handle just completely critically destroys our ability to exit the city. The government's out here playing 40 chess. Yeah. <laughs> we don't even know. No, yeah. But um, I, I don't think in the U.S. like the government would even be able to do such a thing or if it even is the, the morally right thing right response to do mm-hmm. what China is doing in which they shut down entire cities and like no one goes in or out. And again, this it's an interesting question for like supply chains, right? So we're so interconnected in terms of like how we receive our food and fuel and everything like that, where, you know, if the disease sort of spreads to like a central hub, like a farm or whatever, where all the food comes out of, it's like, how do you even stop that? Because people need to eat. And so if you have this central hub, like a farm that spreads all the, the food, you can't just say, okay, we'll contain the farm because then people people need to eat. Like that, that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So I don't even know if that's like a good response. Yeah. When you talk about the morality of it, when you were talking about that, I was kind of thinking it's similar to like the morality of going to war. Like, is it ever moral to go to war right. with with another nation or another entity and i would say yes i would say yes even though we're going to lose Mm -hmm. x number x percent of our own Mm -hmm. if you can really point to some really authoritarian or abusive power elsewhere that's like world war ii is the perfect example of like a worthy cause right so if you can go and prevent more lives being lost with a guarantee for less lives Mm -hmm. being lost i think that is in terms of where government's are positioned that is the the moral uh judgment to make i mean Mm -hmm. that there's a lot that goes into that judgment so don't just i don't think it's just a tally of lives i think there's a right like how certain are you that these amount of lives will be lost versus that which will vary in in all degree especially so in this actual scenario you don't know like you don't know if this virus you don't know exactly how it spreads maybe or you don't know exactly the gestation period at the time when you have to make the decision so it makes it more complex more difficult if you look at it in terms of yeah we're going to lose a certain percentage more of our own to protect more i mean as long as you look at it that way uh but you did mention this one hopefully it's not hopefully it's not that there's signs that indicate it may not be 
as serious as we're kind of making out this grossly awful <laughs> scenario to be. So it's right. not that point yet. Well, we're not uh, necessarily but, saying this case right, yeah, is going to be that. that right. But the, the reality is there's no reason to believe there's never going to be like another pandemic because they happen yeah. periodically throughout it's, history. It's worth, yeah, so, it's worth talking about. Definitely. Right. So even if this is just the scare, sometimes scares are what you need to get your, your head in order. Like if you're a skateboarder and you don't wear a helmet and you fall and you like just barely miss hitting your head and it's like, Oh, it scares yeah. you into like, okay, I'm going to wear a helmet. You know what I mean? Sure. So like, Sometimes these sort of scares are, are, are what you need to get your head straight and actually address a problem that needs to be addressed um, and adequately prepare for it. And so I guess what we're trying to reason through is what we think may be an act like an adequate response. Because another thing we were talking about is something the market doesn't do is the, there's not the market doesn't create excess reserves in medical care for like an outbreak right like so if there's tons and tons of people that need treatment there's not going to be the medical infrastructure to treat all those people at the same time because there's some steady state level of people that need treatment in normal conditions and the market is perfectly fine at providing for that there's no reason it can't but what it's not going to do is have Plan. excess reserves yeah. in hundred year black swan events that are unpredictable. Mm. It's just not right. profitable to plant to to maybe if they're every five years, the market could prepare for that just fine. Or every mm. 10 years, or maybe even every 20. But there's certain things that happen too infrequently right. for it to be in any one person's time horizon. Right. And so this is when you start to need to turn to the government to maybe create excess medical infrastructure in reserve so that such a pandemic happens, we can actually amp up our treatment of people. Like, so maybe having people who are like, not necessarily doctors, but can, I don't know, administer things just on like call, I guess type of deal yeah. and then right. you know having that again excess infrastructure supply lines so that they're not all concentrated on a single hospital like john said he saw a video of like 600 people at this one hospital just waiting to get diagnosed or whatever and it's like like hospitals just can't one hospital can't handle that it's just too much yeah yeah and that's actually an inverse case of the example we were using before of everyone wanting to flee to save their lives right. there's also a force for everyone to con to uh, conglomerate at the location to get diagnosed mm -hmm. to you know oh i want to save myself i want to make sure that this cough i have or this sickness that i feel mm -hmm. isn't it is a it's not the disease or b if it is i get treated and i don't die from it Right. Uh, but that same force that drives people to that site to get diagnosed is also increasing the collisions between people right uh, in terms of more more places for the the virus to spread so that's a that just goes back to another example of how especially at risk people it's putting all the yeah, at risk all, people in one location yeah it's certainly not a optimal from right. a societal standpoint 
So I will say um, to come at this, I guess, one other way in more of a in more true do less fashion. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so we came out pretty heavy on ways the government can act as a government should act and be able to mitigate lives lost. Mm-hmm. But a do less person, someone who believes in do less might say, yes, but as soon as you invite the government to have the power necessary to fight in in a in a just scenario where they they fight uh for the good of society well now that you've invited them to have that power they're going to use it for an example that may not be as mm-hmm. just which is very i think is very valid so i guess i guess that would just i would just concatenate on our kind of message that the government does have a reason to act strongly in this scenario mm-hmm. with the message that the government's powers should be should be limited to those scenarios very precisely and very right. like the wording uh, needs to be very precise yeah. so that there's no cuz like there's so many things in the emergency powers act i think it's called where they basically gave a bunch of power to the president to act in emergency but that's so vague right right they, have, they didn't put any stipulations on what actions could be taken what a true national security threat is. And so that has been abused over and over and over and over again. Yes, and absolutely. so like, I think this is one of those cases where it's actually easy to specifically define this, like a disease of biological nature in the event where there's a risk of rapid contagion, the government may do yada, 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 and specifically outline what they're allowed to do in specific scenarios so that this power has no threat of being misused yeah because as soon as you lend the government the ability to do something extreme Mm -hmm. that's necessary and everybody agrees is necessary you're also welcoming to you're you're welcoming them to to interpret that the way they'd like to 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 act in a way that may not be in everybody's agreed best interest yeah, so, I mean, if this turns out to be as bad as SARS, just to give people a reference, SARS happened, was another viral respiratory disease originating in China that happened in, you know, 2003. And there was a total of 8,000 cases resulting in roughly 800 deaths in 37 different countries. And then it was contained and there's been no cases of it since. So, you know, that's not nothing and it is serious and it is sad to have that loss of life, but it's not a reason to panic, in my opinion, because 800 out of 7 billion people is such a low probability of it like happening to you that there, I don't think there's reason to, to panic over such a thing and, and do anything drastic, just to put it in perspective. Yeah, that's good perspective. Also, it might be worth mentioning, you said the... You had the World Health Organization yeah. like, recommendations earlier. Um, go over those just to... Yeah, so the World Health Organization, they say to reduce your risk of coronavirus infection, uh, clean your hands with soap and water or alcohol-based rub frequently. Cover your nose and mouth when coughing with a tissue or flexed elbow. Avoid close contact with anyone with cold or flu-like symptoms. Uh, thoroughly cook meat and eggs. Avoid unprotected contact 
with live wilder farm animals. And I, I know these things are sort of common sense, but it always helps to be conscious and not only try to prevent yourself from contracting anything, but try to sometimes people are carriers of something without knowing it because uh, they have built in immunity for whatever reason, but they can still give it to other people. So trying to prevent other people from getting it is important too. All right. Well, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for, uh, thanks for doing less with us guys. Yeah. See you next time. Take it easy.